Christopher Kassan, and this is Ireland's Edge. On this episode, a scientist who's moved from spaceflight to opera. Sinead O'Sullivan is an aerospace engineer from Armagh who worked on the planning for human missions to Mars at NASA. She's also worked at Harvard Business School and MIT's Sloan School of Management, where she has applied chaos and complexity theory to everything from tech startups to pop music, a focus that reflects her interest in all things creativity. Last year, she collaborated on a mini-opera about climate change disinformation entitled Unexpected Changes. At Ireland's Edge in Dingle, Sinead spoke with music journalist Jim Carroll. Hope you're well. My name is Jim Carroll. Welcome to Banter at the Edge. I was calling it Banter on the Edge for a while, but I thought it would be kind of rude of me to be putting a banter event on on top of a YouTube guitarist who's got less hair than myself. Welcome back tonight. We were joined by an amazing woman. Her name is Sinead O'Sullivan. Silicon Republic were previewing this event and the headline they used was very good. It was like, it was basically why an aerospace engineer and economist created a, a climate opera. Uh, I'd like to add that as well. This is someone who's worked with NASA. She, uh, she's worked at MIT. She's worked at Morgan Stanley Bank. It's all very interesting. But the thing that caught me when I started doing my research into this was that Sinead is in the top 1% of Taylor Swift fans worldwide. So I was thinking to myself, maybe we do this banter basically about which Sinead talking about uh, Tay-Tay's folklore album and also what she thinks of the whole kind of college core Iron Jumper. But no, I think we'll start with something else instead completely, Sinead. Welcome along to Banter at the Edge. It's great to have you here. Uh, there's, one, there's a quote, you, there's one of the projects you're involved in at the moment around creativity. And there's a quote you have basically where you're talking about like, why are some people nations and organizations more creative than others. Let's, let's, let's kind of talk a little bit about that. Can you first of all start, like, explain to me, like, the, I suppose, the U-turn or the left turn or the kind of, like, I mean, the, the right turn you took to end up kind of, like, talking about creativity from working with NASA and working as well, kind of, like, I mean, in economics as well? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, the question, because you assume that there is a path and it's linear. So, so the question itself um, assumes that I've, I've changed off my supposed... Um, path, but yeah, a couple of years ago, I guess I started to think uh, quite seriously about algorithms and um, specifically content and creativity. And it wasn't until I was trying to actually recreate some of these algorithms around content that I realized that it's nearly impossible to algorithmically create some of the, the best content that's out there. So you hear a lot like, "Oh, AI is going to take over the world; mm. it's going to kill all the jobs." Um, now, I do think AI is clearly having a massive impact on the world. But when I started to think about creativity and art, music, the written word, the spoken word, it just became very clear that AI isn't going to do anything more than replicate what's already out there. And so for me, that was kind of interesting and got me thinking about what else, you know, what is the process of creativity? Um, if we did want to create an algorithm that, that did something very creative, mm-hmm. what are the kind of inputs that we need to give it? And that kind of got me way, way, as you would think of it, left field and started to think about what is creativity and how do people be creative? Mm-hmm. And not only people, but organizations, nations, how do we become industrial, innovative? And it, it kind of just got me into this massive rabbit hole. I can, I can imagine. I can imagine as well that when you started talking to kind of like being what we term as creative people, the mm-hmm. people who kind of create that, create the books, who create the music, and let's stick with music a while. When you talk to kind of a producer or someone like, say, Taylor Swift, for example, <laughs> and you ask him or her to kind of break it down, you know, because you've talked there, you've talked there, Sinead, about like, I mean, building blocks. And I know from your work at NASA that you know how to kind of like, mo- you're, you're a modeling expert. You know how to model hundreds of millions of possible scenarios and possible decisions. 
We're in a studio. We have a songwriter, we have a hook singer, we have 100 engineers, we have 6 million managers, we have 8 billion lawyers, because lawyers get everywhere. So, like, <laughs> when you start talking to these creative people about breaking it down, do they look at you kind of like me as if you kind of, what's this woman from Armagh on about? <laughs> well, most people don't know where Armagh is. <laughs> so that's <laughs> oh my the first God. I you, mean, know. <laughs> you mean the Orchard County doesn't travel that far? Look, you know, it's it's surprising. But <laughs> the first thing is I'm from Northern Ireland. And like, okay, wait, where is that? Um, no, it's in, like a couple of times I've started with, you know, and recently I've been able to interview these really amazing people. And you kind of start with, so I'm, I'm do, I, I worked at NASA and I'm doing this thing. And, you know, the, I guess the technical thing that I'm trying to do is use kind of the complexity and chaos theory that I use at NASA to think about creativity, which are extremely complex um, environments. And so they're kind of looking at you and saying, uh, you know, right, okay, why? <laughs> why are we having this conversation? And then you start to break it down a little bit and, you know, you say, okay, well, I'm just trying to figure out more about your creative process because I'd love to start being able to map it and understand it, model it. And most of the feedback I've had from people is like, I, I, I've never thought about it before. Mm. There isn't a T-shirt I wear. There isn't a thing I have for breakfast. Some days you have good vibes. Some days you have bad vibes. And it's really like, okay, talk to me about the good days and the bad days. Where were you when you produced this song? Because it's like one of the most famous songs of the last three years. Oh, well, there was this one thing that happened that was kind of interesting. You say, okay, that's like, you know, talk to me a little bit about that. I mean... What I'm trying to do is figure out what are the kind of factors that model that I could model into or anybody could model into being able to understand why one song becomes a number one hit by this one producer on this one day by this one artist and then the next day it doesn't. The mm. next piece just doesn't. And they could be quite similar. You said something to me earlier on, like, you know, you were kind of saying that you were more interested in the misses than the hits. You were more interested in kind of like, I mean, like, you know, like uh, rub it off than shake it off, you know? That you were, like, <laughs> it, and I'm, I'm curious about that. Why do the hit, why does the, why do the misses provide more opportunities yeah. for kind of modeling than the hits? Well, Shake It Off is my least favorite Taylor Swift look, song. Look, look, Sinead, so. it's, the only, it's the only Taylor Swift song I know, right? So let's, let's, be, let's be honest here. You'll know more by the end. Okay, so the, the very reason is that our. Nothing that we do is linear, okay? So, like, what, a, what an aerospace engineer does is actually not linear. We model it to be, you know, you start with your aerospace engineering degree, and then you do a few things, and you end up at NASA, and it's a very straight path. My path certainly wasn't like that. And I, the same is true of creativity and most things that we do. Innovation is a very messy, complex process. So a lot of economists and, and kind of people who, who research around this area often say, well, let's look at that one company like Apple. Mm. And what are all the things? Because we know that that's a hit, and we know that we want to replicate that outcome. So let's look at the factors that kind of went into creating that outcome. And then they kind of say, okay, we just need to recreate these somewhere else or for another company, and then we'll have another Apple. When you actually start to understand the journey of companies, startups, songs producers, you realize that it wasn't, you can't take, shake it off, for argument's sake, and kind of work backwards and say, we just need to do that again and again and again. It's actually much easier to look at, you know, with the Apple example, Nokia. Why did Nokia fail and Apple 
succeed. And it's really only when you start to look at the misses instead of the hits that you can say, I can actually isolate here some factors that play a much more important part in the process than others because there's less noise. Right. Give me an example of those factors. Oh, um, so I mean, for, for example, so with music, a lot of them can be a good pairing of producer to artist. Um, the vibe, their vibe. I mean, these are all kind of qualitative qualities or things, factors um, that I haven't yet been able to quantify. But in startups, we can think, you know, Apple and, and Nokia. I mean, some of it's what we would perceive as luck, like even by virtue of us being here and meeting today, and this is kind of where we move from chaos to quantum theory, there are many worlds that exist that have us not being at this table today. I met one of the organizers of this conference or festival very randomly and we ended up making an opera together. <laughs> um, had any of the 10 million things that happened that got us here not happened, someone else would be sitting here and I don't know, someone else could be sitting there. And so there are billions of universes that could and according to kind of quantum um, mechanics do exist and we're lucky that we're in this one. And so by thinking about some of those lucky events, you know, maybe an entrepreneur meets someone and they become an investor. Maybe they get a contract because they networked with the right person. There are all of these kind of what feels like very qualitative lucky things that are happening that actually can and have been quantified in other fields and, and could be quantified in creativity and innovation. Wow. I mean, you, there's, there's one thing, there's one of those kind of like, I suppose, random chances is the fact that you ended up at NASA when you were 17, you know? And we, we, <laughs> yeah. we, we, we talked last week on the phone about like motivations and all that. Like what, what motivated you to apply for a, spa to, for a space camp at NASA when you were like a 16, 17 year old up in Armagh looking at the stars? I, I mean, I just wanted to go. I, you know, I think when you're young, you want to do everything. For me, I really wanted to go to be an astronaut. You know, I, I loved space. I, at that age, I loved a lot of things. You know, I was talking earlier. Um, I loved penguins, Antarctica. I I wrote to David Attenborough asking if I could go on an exhibition. Like there is, there are very few things that I didn't try to do when I was sixteen. But I loved physics, loved uh, philosophy, and kind of um, astrophysics. You know, I had a physics club and. And we formed a band called the UV Catastrophe, <laughs> uh, named after, you know, it, tipping our hats to a, a Dutch physicist. But uh, yeah, I guess I was just, I was lucky that I got to go. And it was actually even lucky that I, I randomly met someone who told me about it mm. so that I could go. So when I think back now of all the kind of random seemingly random things that happened and it's very chaotic and complex world that we live in you know it's mappable it's, it's mm. quantifiable i mean like i want to come back to nasa in a second but there's something else i mean in terms of that kind of like you know those random things you know i'm curious about one aspect of your cv which was working on like um uh, underwater robotics mm -hmm. and mind sweeping i mean the, the mind sweeping thing kind of lifted out of my li li like jumped out at me i mean tell me something tell me what you found out about mines and, <laughs> and where they were buried and, the, and where they were left after the cold war it's funny because I could never figure out how to play mines <laughs> on the the <laughs> Microsoft 95. <laughs> um, so it's ironic that I, yeah. So I, I ended up working on a really cool project uh, for the U.S. Navy, and I mean, you know, when mines were were kind of left behind by 
USSR and, uh, and other kind of um, warships back in the day, I guess how they, they, they would, the, the ships that were laying the mines would follow, I mean, back then we didn't call them algorithms. They just, you know, the captain of the ship chose kind of randomly a route that he would follow and they would just kind of drop mines periodically. Now, it's claimed that they don't have the routes that they took and that we don't know where they are right now, which obviously poses huge threats to US and ally um, ships that are that are in these waters. And so one of the projects, one of the really cool projects that I worked on was actually using um, ROVs, kind of underwater yeah. autonomous vehicles, and detecting mines and using um, AI and kind of algorithms to predict the the journey that the layer took and so that we could actually mark some areas as potentially very high um, probability of, of being uh, laid with mines. Mm. And so then sending kind of uh, mine sweeping or um, a lot of the time they don't kind of, you know, they just leave them there but clear the area. And so being able to map something like that is crucial for the US and allies because, I mean, historically there have been huge incidences of, of uh, loss of, of military um, ships because of that, um, with the loss of mm. lives, U.S. and Ally lives. Mm. So, yeah, mm. <laughs> seemingly random. <laughs> well, no, it, but he also, also kind of lends into a bigger picture, as, as did your second term, uh, second tenure of a kind of like me, NASA, when you worked on kind of like what, what you described as hundreds of millions of possible models for kind of like, I mean, for human flight ship, for, for, for human flight, a human space flight. You know, like the one, one thing I'm kind of curious about, like, I mean, Shane, in terms, of, in terms of that, right, when it comes down to, I suppose, like mapping what goes on in a kind of manned space flight for, for something like NASA, you talked, you, you said, like I said, about hundreds of millions of possible kind of like, I mean, you know, uh, decisions and possible kind of like outcomes and missions, mm -hmm. you know, like what, what, what was in that? I mean, like, I mean, is, is, it, is it everything you can think of? And it, it does it come a point when you kind of realize, hold on a second, we left something out. <laughs> yeah, usually you realize you've left something out when you've been running your code for three days and you have to start again. Um, it, you know, it's, so this is kind of a common, what we call a combinatorial uh, problem for complex problems where, you know, the, the human mind, so traditionally we had um, engineers, I mean, we still do, but we had engineers project managed missions like these. And intuitively they would know things and it kind of relates to creativity a little bit like that. Intuitively, the engineer knows we should have this configuration of, of launch vehicle with this configuration of propellant. And my gut's telling me that this is the trajectory that we should take. Now we're gonna have about five astronauts and. When you start to multiply the, well, the risk, but also the number of possibilities of alternatives and whether or not we could actually optimize using the alternatives, you start to realize that the human brain isn't capable of thinking about dimensions that are, I mean, we're talking about multi-dimensional analysis of thousands of billions. They call it a combinatorial explosion. And so your gut instinct, kind of like a producer, might be there and says, I, I think we should do this or we should do that. And it could be a hit, but it could also not be. And so what I would do is take all of the possible variations for propellants, all of the possible variations for uh, launch designs, 
uh, all of the kind of trajectories. And, you know, but there might be 400 of those design decisions, and they might each have 10 different possibilities each. And do kind of a complex analysis and figure out, okay, well, we have these constraints, we have these safety kind of qualitative factors. You know, we have safety concerns, and mm. th this is the amount of science return that we want to get back from Mars. And then you can start to narrow down what we call the design space, which is this really funky, multi-dimensional looking um, graph. And you can start to say, okay, now there's like 400 million possible. <laughs> yeah. Designs and and you get to pick one. Wow! I mean, you, you, it's interesting. You you casually made a kind of comparison between putting together modeling for NASA versus a producer in the studio going with their instinct. You know, mm -hmm. if a producer in the studio goes with the instinct and it's wrong, you end up with an expensive miss, but and you might get a hit. But I can imagine with NASA, if you end up with a miss, you end up something like a challenger. Yeah, and I, I you know I worked. I actually modeled for for a different project. The fallout, the the literal fall, the trajectory of the fallout of. The Challenger mission. Like the, the space industry is one that is completely, completely focused on safety above, above and beyond anything else. Um, it's a very small community as well. You know, we've seen incidents before in Mexico, um, sorry, Brazil, the, the, the uh, launch pad unfortunately blew up and, and wiped out half of the agency and and expensive mistakes in the space industry are expensive mm -hmm. and so it's yeah you know your gut instinct uh when you when you're the human brain is not capable of thinking about 400 million dimensions uh isn't enough in the age of having supercomputers and quantum um mechanics and like understanding how we can think about two things simultaneously. Yeah. I want to come back to that Silicon Republic headline and that last part of it, which was the opera. You know, yeah. do you want to talk a bit about that? Like, you know, seeing as we're here at, at, at an event which is kind of like, I mean, it's supposed to value in creativity and music, you know? Like, yeah. where does the opera come into the whole setup, Janet? I mean, it's like everything else, <laughs> kind of random or seemingly random. So I have been thinking, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of kind of work in the creative space recently and have been thinking about Operas. There's this amazing organization called Opera Vision EU. And over lockdown, they had started these kind of um, mini, weekly mini concerts, five, ten minutes each, uh, where the, their professionals had kind of worked together in groups where they had met each other and created something kind of contemporary. And I thought this was amazing because opera, I mean, I, like, I'm trained in a classical instrument, but opera still feels a little bit inaccessible to me. But these contemporary versions seemed really accessible. And so I, I really went, I emailed them and they said, look, there's kind of only professionals that can do this. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to find my own people to make an opera with. And that evening I went and discussed this with a couple of other friends. And two days later, uh, one of the organizers of, of this uh, event, Shifra, just, I, I happened to very serendipitously meet her. And I was like, oh, sorry, you're, you're an operetta. Mm -hmm. Okay, amazing. I could definitely use your help. And so I told, you know, my idea to Shifra, and she pulled in all of these amazing people, some of them opera professionals, you know, a couple of them uh, friends of mine, one of them colleague at MIT and former chief of staff at Google, another guy from the Jet Propulsion Lab, and, you know, another guy friend. And we decided to, to do it on climate change, um, I just finished reading at the time uh, a, 
a book written by economists uh, Eric Lonergan and Mark Blythe and Angrynomics, and we kind of took a couple of the themes from that and combined it with climate disinformation. And yeah, it, it was just a really cool project. And actually going through the creative process to try to understand some of these things. Mm. I mean, like, last question for me then, like, I mean, Sinead, thanks very much for your time and coming along, but last question, I, I suppose, I, I, as you've been talking there about all these kind of random things that are going on, and I'm also kind of like, I'm, I'm curious about, like, where you think you're going to take that whole idea around modelling and that whole idea around, like, I suppose, like, trying to map out where creativity goes with the music industry. I mean, because, mm-hmm. like, you know, it, it, it strikes me as something that, like, when you, we talk, you, you talked earlier on, you were talking about, like, Will Page at, at Spotify, the economist at Spotify, and getting data from him and it strikes me there's an awful lot of data points out there but can is the right data being captured and like is is there still a kind of a a chance that like the record industry and music industry doesn't understand where you're coming from and doesn't really want to and it's still kind of going on gut instinct all the time i mean i don't think we should remove this gut instinct aspect but i do think it is i mean i think algorithmically we measure things in a very one-dimensional way and we assume that the world is linear I think employing this kind of complex and chaos systems-driven approach allows us to say, well, there are these other qualitative factors, and their interactions are sometimes more meaningful than, than that thing alone. And finding new ways to model those, I don't think... What I'm trying to do is certainly not get rid of artists or get rid of Spotify, but I'm just trying to understand what happens around us in, a, in another kind of perspective. So... I do think we are leaving a lot of kind of data on the table and these kind of more qualitative interactions that we have could be could be looked at a little bit differently. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. You know, the guys at Spotify are, are doing really cool and amazing things. I, I'm just trying to better understand where the creator and the machine kind of interact at the edge a little bit there. Like, what happens there? Mm. Um, so, we'll see. Are you finding it something that kind of, like, you know, like we, we, we know where creators are coming in, but those who are, like, I mean, I suppose, brokering the whole situation, like the Spotify, I'd imagine it's something that they're quite interested in. Yeah, I mean, Spotify as an organization are really uh, experimental and innovative themselves. Um, and they work with people who are incredibly innovative and creative. I mean, I, think, I certainly think we can learn a lot from looking at... So if we think about industrial policy and innovation, I mean, Stephen, you know, is, has just been talking about this, but um, it's very difficult to learn anything about innovation by looking at innovation because it takes a really long time. So we can try something new and then 10 years' time, we can be like, well, did that work or not? Mm. And then you're like, oh, there's all this conflation between, well, then there was a crash and then this other thing happened, so we're not sure. With music... You can make a hit in a week and you can control some of the, the factors, the confounding factors. Um, you can, you know, if you speak to the economist at, at Spotify, you can say, hey, I, I want to get what you were doing on that week with your algorithms and you can control for it. And then you can see all the kind of other factors that, that contributed to a hit without having to, yeah, without having to conflate. Mm-hmm the kind of the machine into it all or the economy if we're thinking about industrial innovation wow i mean this has been a fascinating conversation i think we have to bring you back to canada so we can get to the second half of the conversation so thank you very much sinead thank you to sinead o'sullivan for joining jim carroll in dingle 
On our next episode, I talk to wordsmiths Feli Speaks and Shane Davis about the past, present and future of spoken word poetry in Ireland. They tried to bury us, but I didn't know we were sound itself, there for each a stunning beat, there for each a music replicated by them. Ogma had been a man, but since he died, he was elevated to the status of a god. And it was the god of Irish poetry because it was said his words could inspire 10,000 men to battle. To make sure that you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a South Wind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Kassan. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge. Ireland's Edge.